Will you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And these brothers have some Bibles in hand. They're going to make their way toward the back. So if you need one, get their attention and they'll get one of those too. You marked out Romans 1. I mentioned earlier that we're starting a series in the opening chapters of Genesis. But we're going to be looking in substantial part to Romans chapter 1 to explain a portion of the very first line in the Word of God in Genesis 1-1. So please turn to Romans chapter 1. My father died in 1973 when I was just 11 years old. I sometimes think about what our society was like then versus where it is today. And I wonder what he would think if he somehow had the misfortune to return from heaven and take a look. I know that he had become concerned about the direction of the country following the upheaval of the 60s and its emphasis on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And now I, having lived to see the changes brought about in our country in the years since his passing, I sometimes reflect on where we've been and how it is we got here. I recently read the comments of one participant in the chaos of the 60s, who, like many of those in his generation, laments much of what it produced. He says this, We reveled in our self-proclaimed status as rebels with a cause, who would remake America and the West in our own bearded image. Of course, not everyone in the revolutionary cadres was consciously committed to the dismemberment of society as we knew it. Many came along for the jubilant sex, the acid trips, and the music, as did the Woodstock hordes and the plankton-like, free-floating hippies who were content to, quote, let it all hang out. We saw ourselves as an army of youthful saints marching toward the dawning millennium, chasing our dream that conflict Hatred, inequality, and injustice could be abolished once and for all and replaced by an idyllic world in which the economy would be regulated by an enlightened class of sages and benefactors. Poverty would cease to exist. Racial prejudice and social disparities would be a thing of the benighted past. Everyone over 30 would be put out to pasture. And we would all make love, not war. So how did all that work out? And what went wrong? Certainly it was not the goals that were the problem. Who would disagree with the goals of abolishing hatred and conflict and inequality based on race, of injustice, and an end to war? You can count me in on that, and I'm sure you as well. The problem was not the goals, but the incorrect view of the world, in particular the incorrect view of human nature, as neutral, neither good nor evil, and therefore pliable and able to be molded by external, especially governmental action. But what if it turns out that human nature is not changeable from the outside? Well, then activism is not the answer that many thought it would be. The founders of our country understood that foundational to everything that they would structure for this future government, foundational to all of that was a correct view of human nature, one that had to be accurate even if it's unsettling. 
And political scientist Richard Hofstadter, in his book, The American Political Tradition, said this about the Founding Fathers and their view of human nature. They looked to their own Christian heritage of the idea of original sin. And they found confirmation of the notion that man is an unregenerate rebel. They were inordinately confident that they knew what man always had been and what he always would be. And so private vices could be public benefits. An economically beneficent result would be providentially or naturally achieved if self-interest were left free from state interference and allowed to pursue its ends. Now, that's a mouthful. What does that mean? It means that they understood the true nature of humanity as not being neutral, but rather as being sinful. And so rather than denying that, and rather than even trying to change that, they developed a system, in this case an economic system, that would take advantage of the greed of the sinful heart. Capitalism exploded, and over the last 200 years, you have seen the largest economic benefit to a country and a society and the world that the world has ever seen, all because it was based on a correct view of human nature that can be empirically measured then by its results. You see, friends, ideas have consequences. What we believe determines our behavior. And many people, many of us are concerned about where we are as a society. In fact, consistently, at least two-thirds of the nation says in polls the country is headed in the wrong direction. Many are concerned But too many of us fail to realize that underlying what we're doing is what we're thinking. The late, great Christian philosopher and theologian Francis Schaeffer wrote a book shortly before his death in 1983 called A Christian Manifesto. And in it he said this, Christians have gradually become disturbed over permissiveness, pornography, our schools, the breakdown of the family, and abortion. But they have not seen this as a totality, each thing being a part, a symptom of a much larger problem. They fail to see that all of this has come about due to a shift in the worldview. That is, through a fundamental change in the overall way people think and view the world and life as a whole. A large share of the nation's moral and spiritual challenges is directly attributable to the absence of a biblical worldview among Americans. One national survey showed only 4% of adults have a biblical worldview as the basis of their decision-making. George Barna, whose company performed the survey, said this, Behavior stems from what we think, our attitudes, our beliefs, our values, and our opinions. Although most people own a Bible and know some of its content... Our research found that most Americans have little idea how to integrate core biblical principles to form a unified and meaningful response to the challenges and opportunities of life. Now, for that survey, a biblical worldview was defined as possessing a number of distinct beliefs, including believing that absolute moral truths exist and that such truth is defined by the Bible. Adults with a biblical worldview possess, says Barna, radically different views from those who do not. Radically different views on morality. And they demonstrated vastly different lifestyle choices. 
People's views on morality, acceptable, morally acceptable behavior, are deeply impacted, he says, by their worldview. Virtually no one who possessed, according to that survey, a biblical worldview found the following behaviors to be acceptable. Cohabitation, drunkenness, gay sex, profanity, adultery, pornography, abortion. And so if you're concerned about the condition of our country, if you're concerned about the condition of our state, of our community, of your home, of your own life, then you need to look first at what you truly believe about the foundational issues of life. Who am I? Where did I come from? What is my purpose? And those questions are all answered by your worldview, your view of the world, as the word suggests. And everybody has one, friends. Everybody has a view of everything they see. Everybody has a worldview, but very few people consciously adopt their worldview. Most people unconsciously absorb it from those around them. So I've mentioned this idea and the importance of worldview several times. What is then specifically a worldview? It is this. It's a way of viewing or interpreting all of reality. It's a framework through which one makes sense of the data of life and the world. You could just look at it this way. It's the glasses, the spectacles that you put on through which you see everything and through which you interpret everything. And so these are the underlying assumptions that you bring to every situation, to every conversation, and to every so-called fact. Do you all know that there's no such thing as just a brute fact? That every fact still has to be interpreted. And the facts are interpreted like everything else through the spectacles that we wear, the particular worldview that we have. Now, you think that there are at least some people who don't have that tainted, biased set of glasses through which to view the world, right? I mean, scientists, they're completely objective, right? Well, a few years ago, the New York Times published an op-ed column titled, Taking Science on Faith. It was written by a professor at Arizona State University. Professor Paul Davies said, Science, we are repeatedly told, is the most reliable form of knowledge about the world because it's based on testable hypotheses. Religion, by contrast, is based on faith. The problem with this neat separation is that science has its own faith-based belief system. All science proceeds on the assumption that nature is ordered in a rational and intelligible way. You couldn't be a scientist if you thought the universe was a meaningless jumble of odds and ends haphazardly juxtaposed. When physicists probe to a deeper level of subatomic structure or astronomers extend the reach of their instruments, they expect to encounter additional elegant mathematical order. And so far, this faith has been justified. He says both religion and science are founded on faith, namely on belief in the existence of something outside the universe. Just as Christians claim that the world depends utterly on God for its existence, so physicists declare the universe is governed by external, eternal laws. 
until science comes up with a testable theory of the laws of the universe, then its claim to be free of faith is manifestly bogus, he says. All right. So I say we're starting a series on Genesis. And why have I spent all of this time then on worldview? And why is it that I've chosen to do this series at all? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons that we're going to spend several months going through the opening chapters of the Word of God. One is this, that if I'm asked what it is that I would like for the legacy of Community Bible Church to be, when the Lord takes me home or the Lord returns, after I am gone, what would I like the legacy of our church to be? I would like it to be this, that all of the people who were part of this church lived their lives intentionally, according to a biblical view of the world. That every person here lives his or her life intentionally and consciously, according to a view of the world that they received from God's word, the Bible. And secondly, the reason, another reason that I want to do this series is because it's necessary for us to see the connection between what follows in the Word of God, the New Testament, and what God sets forth in the very opening pages of Scripture. Many times we go to the New Testament, we go to the second portion of the Bible. And if you've grown up in Sunday school, if you've grown up in church, then you're familiar with some of those connections, at least vaguely. And you read about Christ being the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, somebody just opens that and sees someone called the Lamb of God. Why is he being called a lamb? Well, that goes back to the very beginning. And it goes back to the entrance of sin. And it goes back to Genesis chapter 3. And God telling us that a payment is going to need to be made for such sin. And then after that, many of us know that God established a system in the first part of your Bible where lambs were slain for that very reason. And then comes the one promised in the first part of your Bible, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, who has come to put away once and for all the sin of those who would come to him. And so all that we find in the New Testament has as its foundation and necessity and explanation what we find in the very first part of the Bible and, in fact, in its very first chapters. So we're doing this series because I want everybody who's a part of this church to live their lives intentionally and consciously according to a view of the world that comes from the Bible, a biblical worldview. And secondly, we need it in order to understand everything else that God gives us in his world. And so I've called this series, Our Problems and God's Promises. Let's ask God then to help us as we begin. Our Father, we thank you that we have the light of your word to turn to in order to have a proper view, a proper perspective on everything in the world that you have made. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to grope in darkness. But help us then to be people who gratefully take advantage of the light that you have given us in your word and then seek to live our lives and order them according to it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Now, as each week, we have inserted in your program an outline. So if you haven't taken that out already, I encourage you to do that. There are four major points that I'd like to make. The first one is this. You were made with a worldview. You were made with a worldview. Now, I say that based upon Romans chapter 1. Verse 19 says, What may be known about God is plain, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Verse 21 says, They knew God. Now, Romans chapter 1 is telling us something that the Bible begins with in its very first line. The very first line of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning, God. And there's no attempt to prove that this God exists. The Bible simply begins, In the beginning, God. Now, why is that the case? Because Romans chapter 1 is explaining why that's the case. That all people know God. All people were made to know God. Adam was made with a view of the world that began with the fact that he was a creature made by the Creator. Adam began with that, and so we began with that. Now you say, what's my connection to Adam? Stay with us in this series, and you'll see. But Adam was made to know God, and we then were made to know God. And then Romans 1.21 says, we, in fact, knew God. And how long did we know God? Since the creation of the world. Since the very beginning. So from the very beginning, from the creation of the world, mankind was made to know this God who made him. And how did God design it that all from the creation of the world, from the very beginning, would continue to know this, this God? The Bible gives us a couple of ways. We're going to see in just a bit that all people are given a conscience. All people are given an understanding that there are certain things that are right and wrong. But also God has given the external world for us to look at. And as you look at the magnificence of God's world, you are forced to understand that it was made by the power of one outside that world. And that's why Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So we were made to know God from the very beginning. We continually know that this God who made us exists and is there by virtue of what he made. It is made plain to them since the creation of the world by what has been made. And the heavens declare the glory of God, but also the unique creation of humanity was such that man had to have the innate capacity to know this God. Now, here's why I say this. In the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, God created all things, the heavens and the earth. That's everything. And then it goes on to give some detail as to, as to what God created and the sequence in which he created it. But toward the end of that very first chapter, on day number 6 of creation week, God created the crowning achievement of all of his creation, that is humanity, made in his image. And here's what the Bible says. 
God blessed them and said to them. Now, you notice I have those two words, to them, emphasized. Here's why. Because as you read through Genesis chapter 1, as we go through that in the months ahead, you're going to see that God said a number of times a number of things. God said, let there be light. God said, let the greater light rule the day and the lesser light, the moon, to rule the night. God said all sorts of things. This is the first time that God said to someone. God said this to them. Now, what does that mean? It means they were made with the capacity to communicate with God. Now, as Adam and Eve are the first beings... And God speaks to them. They don't say, "Um, who are you? They don't say, do you have some documentation to back up that you're the creator of the universe? They were made to know his voice, and so God directly says to them. And Romans chapter 1 says that people still, to this day, all people who were made to know God still know God. And they were made to know his voice. And this is the reason that when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school tomorrow, if you try to talk about this God, people will say, I don't talk about, what do they say? I don't talk about religion. (laughs) They'll tell you all about their weekend. They'll tell you all sorts of stuff you didn't want to know. They'll talk about anything, but they don't want to talk about God. And we're going to see there's a reason for that. Because although people were made to know God, people don't want to know God. And they're hiding from God. But God blessed them and made them to know his voice. And people still know the voice of their creator. And they still know that they are creatures made by the creator. Even if they deny that. And that's why the great apostle Paul, when he went to Athens, Greece, and he spoke to a group of Greek philosophers there. In Acts chapter 17, he gives this marvelous presentation of the truth of Scripture. And he begins, and please note where he begins. Verse 24 of Acts chapter 17, he starts this way. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He starts with creation. Now, why does he start with creation? He goes on to say in his speech to these philosophers, In him we live and move And have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So he starts out with creation, and he can start out with creation because he knows that they know God. That they know that they are creatures made by the creator. So he can start there, and he can even appeal to some of their own poets who have said, we are his offspring. Man was made to know God and to know the voice of the God who made him. And that's why Solomon, in this marvelous book of 12 chapters in the first part of your Bible called Ecclesiastes, a book that surveys worldly wisdom and wisdom from above and contrasts the two. But in it, Solomon says this, He, God, has set eternity in the human heart. People were made to know God. And in Romans chapter 2, just one chapter over from where you are in Romans 1, in verse 15, The Bible says God's law is written on their hearts. So God made all humanity to know him. 
God has written his law in their hearts, giving men, a, all humanity, a conscience of right and wrong. He has set eternity in their hearts. All men know God, according to verse 21 of Romans 1. And so here's what that means. You, all of us, all humanity, was made originally with a worldview, a view of the world. That begins with God. The way I've put it in my classes, the class that we teach and encourage everybody to go through is our foundational institute class, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. If you've been through that, you've heard me call that orientation. Orientation. That is, God made humanity and God gave those he made an orientation to him, to themselves, and to his world. And he did that in the opening pages of the Word of God. You were made with a worldview and you were given, we were given an orientation to that world by God. So the first thing I want you to see is that you were made with a worldview. But secondly, in your outline, you were born with a worldview. You were made with a worldview, created with a worldview. But you were also born with a worldview. I said earlier, all men were made to know God, but... They do not want to know God. And that's why verse 18 of Romans 1 says this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So here's what the Bible is saying. Based upon the truth of the very first verse of the Bible, the very first chapter of the Bible, That God is the creator of all things, including humanity. He made us to know his voice, to know him, made us in his image. All people know that, but people don't want to know that. And so they, according to verse 18, suppress, that is, they hold down that truth. Here's one way for you to process what that means. Suppress, hold down the truth of the existence of God and the primacy of God that is to be in every human life. One way to think of that suppression is this. People just don't want to think about it. People just don't want to talk about it. It's like God is a bad memory, a repressed memory for sinful people. They have it, but they don't want to think about it. And they purposely repress it. They, they hold it down. Look at what verse 28 of Romans 1 says. Verse 28. It says they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Do you see what's being said there? People do not naturally want to think about God. And so they suppress the truth about God. That they were made to know. And so when I say you were born now with a worldview. Yes, you were created, you were made with a worldview. But you were also born now with a worldview. Here's what I'm saying. Because of the entrance of sin into God's world that we will see in the months ahead. Because of the entrance of sin, that has now changed us. Changed our nature so that we are born now, born into this world, every last one of us, with a worldview, but it's now a skewed worldview. It's a view of the world that suppresses the knowledge of God. It's a view of the world that is tainted now by And distorted by sin. That's why the Bible says this. You were born dead in your transgressions and sins. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. 
All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So this is the commentary of what humanity has become. The opening chapters, two chapters of the Bible tell us what we were made to be, and then the Bible tells us after that what we have have become. Romans chapter 3 says, As a result of this sin and this change of our nature now, there is no one who seeks God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no reverence for God. Naturally, the true and living God before the eyes of sinful humanity. Now this begins to explain, then, from a biblical worldview, the headlines that you see in the newspaper every day and every week. Why is there evil in the world? The Bible's answer to that is, man has chosen a different view of God's world. And he can't escape the fact that he's a creature made by the Creator, but he's trying to escape. And he's trying to hide. And in doing that, all manner of evil is broken loose because it is contrary to what we were made for. And it renders us foolish. Renders us foolish. Now, let me remind you before we look at passage in Romans 1 that tells us that it renders us foolish when we reject the worldview that we were made for. And we embrace the one that we're born with, tainted by sin. Remember, foolishness is not ignorance. Ignorance means I don't know. Foolishness is failure to apply what I do know. And that's why in Psalm 14 and verse 1, the Bible says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You see, we've already seen he knows there's a God. But he fails to apply what he knows, and that's why he's called a fool. It's not he's ignorant of the fact that there's a God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And verse 22 of Romans 1 says this, Although they claim to be wise, they became fools. As a result of rejecting the creator who, creator who they were made to know, then people become fools. And that foolishness is seen, yes, in claims to atheism, but it's also seen in the fact that one has to assume God in order to deny God. What a foolish thing. That one has to assume God in order to deny God. I saw this starkly presented several years ago when I saw a video of a debate between an atheist and a Christian theologian. And the atheist, in his introduction, said that in this debate, I'm going to set out to prove, using the laws of logic, that's what he said, the laws of logic, that there is no God. And then he challenged the the Christian. He said, can you point me, can you point this audience Christian theologian, to anything in the universe other than God that is immaterial, not matter, not physical. And do you know what the Christian theologian's answer was? The laws of logic. And the atheist did not know what to say. The very laws of logic that he sought to use to show that there is no God, presuppose that there is this God. The very physics of the world that a scientist uses to deny that there is a God, 
as we've read earlier, assume that there is such a God. The foolishness of humanity is seen in a number of ways, including the fact that you have to assume God in order to deny him. So you and I and all of us were made, created with a worldview. And secondly, we were born with a distorted worldview. And I call that worldview we were made and created with orientation. God telling us who he is and who we are and why he's placed us here. And I call this the fact that we are born sinfully with a distorted worldview. That is disorientation. We were given an orientation, but because of sin now, we live in a disoriented world. Not what it was intended to be and not playing out the way God intended it to be. So you were made with a worldview, born with a worldview, thirdly in your outline. You are always affected by your worldview. Always affected by your worldview. And it affects quickly four things in your world. It affects your view of God. And so if you are still... In the worldview you were naturally came into this world with, this distorted worldview, it affects your view of God. Because that worldview now, instead of placing God at the center, places you at the center. And so if you believe in God at all, God is there primarily for you rather than you here primarily for him. It affects your view of God. But it also affects, secondly, your view of yourself. It affects your view of yourself. Everyone has a view of his and her self and what it is that we deserve and what it is that should accrue to us by virtue of being on this earth and being born. And all of us self-centeredly have an overly high view of ourselves. But it's affected by your worldview, which is a sinful worldview unless it's changed. It affects your view of God. It affects your view of yourself. It affects, thirdly, your view of others. Of others. So do I see others as existing primarily for my happiness, primarily for my service? You'll see this in your relationships when things go sour. Your worldview will show itself. When relationships are not the way you want them to be and people are not doing what you want them to do. Your reaction, your words, and your actions are all dictated by your view, your worldview of others. And then fourthly, it affects your view of the world, the world around you. And I, if I had time, but we're going to have months together, I could wax about and we'll touch on these but how your worldview affects you in so many areas. Sociologically, how you view society and what ails it and what its its remedies are. It affects your view of the world politically. Do you believe that people are basically good or neutral and therefore they've just gotten a raw deal? Or do you believe, as the Bible teaches, that people's behavior is dictated at the most fundamental level by what they are as sinners. That will affect your view of policy. That will affect your view of politics. It will affect your view of anthropology, that is, your view of humanity in, in general. And psychology. 
Are we, anthropologically, psychologically, are we simply machines and matter and only physical? Your worldview will tell you that. If you have a naturalistic worldview that says all that exists is what we see in the natural, physical, material world, then human beings are simply matter. They're simply physical. They're simply machines. And when people do things wrong, it means we have to tweak the machinery. Something's gone wrong with the gray matter. So it'll affect your view of how people are constructed and then how psychologically they think. The Bible, as we're going to see, teaches we are both matter and immatter, material and immaterial. Your worldview affects your view of philosophy. Philosophy means, the word literally means, the love of wisdom. And what do you see then as right? What do you see as wise? What do you see as as true? It affects your view of biology, cosmology. To put it shortly, it concisely, it affects everything. So friends, you were made with a worldview. You were born with a worldview. You're always affected by your view of the world. And then lastly, the Bible says all of us must change our worldview. You must change your worldview. Now, why must I change? Because I came into the world, I was born into the world with a distorted view of the world. And so the lenses that I have from moment one are the wrong set of lenses. And those spectacles have to be changed. I have to be changed to see the world now differently. But notice I have to be changed to see the world differently. I have to be changed from the inside out. And that then affects, if you believe that, and that's what the Bible teaches, if you believe that, then that affects you the way you go about presenting the truth to people. Because people are not then firstly changed from the outside in, but from the inside out. To put it in the words of Augustine, we do not understand in order to believe but rather I believe in order to understand. A person comes to believe, and then when they believe, they now see things rightly. They see things radically in a radically different way. Or as the famous Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal said, the heart has reasons of which reason knows nothing. You see, you come into this world with a pre-commitment, a heart commitment towards certain truths. But the Bible says you're born with a distorted set of lenses, distorted affections. Or in the words of Psalm 36, it is in your light, Lord, that we see light. How do I see clearly? I see clearly when I enter into the light of the truth that you have given. And so because of all of that, God, the Bible says, calls on all men and women and boys and girls everywhere to repent. Now that word repent, as I've explained to you many times, means a change of mind. But it's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. And because we come in with a false and distorted worldview, now our worldview has to be changed. There has to be a paradigm shift. For all of us. And that's what the Bible calls repentance. 
Remember I spoke of Paul and those Greek philosophers in Athens, and he started with creation, and he quoted one of their own poets, we are his offspring. He ends that discourse to them by saying this. He, God, commands all people everywhere to repent, to change the mind, to adopt the worldview that you were made to have, but which has been replaced because you've been born with a sinful nature. Because of all of that, you have really two kinds of people in the world, and only two kinds of people. You have, in the words of the King James Version, the quick and the dead. Quickened means to be made alive. The quick mean those who are spiritually alive and then those who are spiritually dead. And those who are spiritually alive have been changed so that they have replaced the distorted lenses of the sinful worldview with the accurate lenses of the biblical worldview. And you see that contrast between those who have it and those who do not throughout the word of God. Deuteronomy 32 is one example which says this, their rock is not like our rock. Completely different. And so the Bible warns. Colossians chapter 2, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, the Bible says that we are to, I'm quoting now, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, in order for me, for you not to be taken in through hollow and deceptive philosophy, then where do I turn? To where do I repent? Toward whom do I change my mind? And the Bible says, and Paul said in Acts 17, that it is toward one person and one person only, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, your creator, having come to solve the problem of your distorted worldview. The Bible says this of Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You're not to be taken captive by false philosophy, a false worldview, but rather you come to Christ. And coming to Christ now, you're given this new set of spectacles, this new set of lenses through which you see everything. You were made with a worldview. You were given an orientation. You were born with a worldview. It has become disoriented, disorientation. And then here, thirdly, You can be given a new worldview. That is reorientation. And that's what God is doing in his world. He is reorienting people to see the way they were originally made to see. Now up at the top of your outline, I have the title of this message. Do you see it? Choosing my religion again. You see, because God gave us a religion originally. He made Adam. He made us. He made us to know him. He made us to be able to recognize him, to love him, to commune with him, to serve him. He made us for all of that. We were given a religion. And we pursued that religion through the accurate worldview that God gave us. But we chose, we all chose in Adam. To replace that view of the world, to replace that religion with our own self-centered religion. And that's why I say... Repentance is choosing my religion again. You've already chosen it once. Now you have to repent and choose again. That is, be restored to what you were made to be. I say in the take-home truth, then, we are called to see life 
through God's lens. We are all called to see life through God's lens. But that requires repentance. That requires changing the lenses I come into this world with, with spectacles that God gives in salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does that happen for you and me? And we'll conclude. Here's how it happens. I say virtually every week, realize that you are a sinner. Realize that that sin includes the fact that you now see the world in a false way, without God at the center, without Jesus Christ at the center. But recognize that God, in his love for you, has done what's necessary in order for you to be restored to him, in relationship with him, and then seeing life through him. Christ died on the cross for your sins, and then repent. A change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Lord, I'm going to go your way. I'm going to think your thoughts after you. I'm going to take the light of your word that you have provided, and I'm going to let it be the guide for my life. Not my own desires, not the crowd, not the culture. You repent, and you receive Jesus Christ into your life. How do you do that? The Bible says you ask. If today you have seen that you have a worldview that's not centered on God but centered on yourself, the Bible summarizes that as sin. That sin has to be paid for, and Jesus paid for it. And you recognize that Jesus paid for it. Receive the payment that he made for you by asking for it. Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner. From your heart to God, in your own words, you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus, God the Son, came and died for my sin. I ask you to apply his payment to me personally, and I give you my life. I'm going to follow you with my life. I'm going to go in your direction, not mine. That's repentance. And God begins to change you from the inside out and replace your distorted spectacles, your distorted lenses, with the true lenses that he gives based upon his word. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you again that you have given us Holy Scripture, your word, your revelation to us, so that we know who you are, so that we know why you have made this world, why you have made us, what you expect of us, so that we know how we have fallen short, all of us, and that we know your marvelous plan of redemption to remedy what has gone wrong because of our sin. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that truly in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. And that when we come to him, we begin to see your world clearly. Lord, we ask you to draw some out of the world into yourself in this sacred moment, causing them to see that they have lived for themselves, that they naturally, sinfully, naturally live for themselves rather than for you. And that is what you call sin, and that is what Jesus came to pay for in his death on the cross. I pray that you would draw them to yourself and give them these new lenses so that they see aright and they then behave aright. And Lord, I ask you to help us in the months ahead as we go through your word. And we see in these opening chapters of scripture that you have laid out for us the details of what you intended, what has gone wrong, and then points us to the solution that you have given us in Jesus Christ throughout the rest of Scripture. We pray, Lord, that as a result of this, we will indeed be a church of people, a community of faith that intentionally and consciously lives according to a biblical worldview. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.